prepare to cure yourself courtesy of Sony Music. And when we come back to the other side, I'll be talking to Patricia Eddie Temple. In the east of the night, I saw you bleed through the thunder. I could hear you scream. Solid to the air I breathe. Open night, about to sleep. Falling softly as the break. No footsteps ringing in your ears. Drag it down onto the skin. All your raging have no fear. Secure yourself to heaven. Hold on tight, the night has come. Fasten off your earthly burden. You have just begun. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. We're celebrating Pride. According to the U.S. Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, social stigma, discrimination, and violence are just a few barriers that the gay community faces when seeking help to manage diabetes. Joining me to talk more about this subject is our very own Patricia Addy Jessel. Hi, Patricia. Hello, Max. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us tonight to talk about this (laughs) subject. You know, it's Pride Month. I love to focus on my community and, you know, so many things for me, uh, about coming out around my own sexual identity, I think parallel coming out about diabetes. And, you know, when you talk about stigma and discrimination, I think it is so important that you first um, accept who you are to yourself and let others know that in order to help you uh, attain some kind of self-worth and really want to take care of yourself. Um, Absolutely. And what I, I could agree more. And what I was interested in, though, is I know there's a lot of people going, why, why, why? But there are some real specifics here about why the LGBTQ plus community uh, are at risk for diabetes and why a podcast like this, as well as a lot of other social media posts and things, are really necessary at this time. I mean, one thing I read is that smoking is very prevalent in the community and and rates as high as 38 and 59% among the gay youth. Uh, which is so much different than what we see in our heterosexual counterparts. I'm just wondering, does smoking have any kind of influence on your risk for diabetes? Smoking definitely does have an impact on risk for diabetes because smoking increases insulin resistance, and that um, is one of the major impacts, uh, influences in developing type 2 diabetes. So smoking does have a major impact. And do you find that a lot of people just don't make that connection, right, because they don't consider it cigarette foods or whatever or drinks, so maybe they don't even uh, understand that that there is a fairly strong link between the two. That is correct. A lot of people have not realized that and therefore just think smoking is a, a cultural habit or, you know, acceptable type of thing and has no influence on uh, diabetes, uh, although they have uh, learned about the health risk and other consequences when it comes to cardiovascular health, but not with diabetes. All right, and, you know, since we are diabetic, we focus on women. I posted something on Facebook today about this alarming statistic that bisexual and lesbian women are at a much greater risk of developing type 2 diabetes. No one knows for sure, but they did point out that there is a prevalence of PCOS among lesbians that's much higher than their heterosexual counterparts. What is that, and what kind of impact would that have on your risk for type 2 diabetes? Uh, PCOS is 
polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it occurs in, um, you know, it's a major factor in the development of type 2 diabetes. And we do know that women who have uh, polycystic ovaries often have high levels of testosterone. And so that is one of the reasons why you see um, diabetes developing. And they are insulin resistant as well. Interesting, and I know we've spoken to a lot of women with PCOS, and we actually interviewed the PCOS diva um, several episodes ago, about two years ago, actually, that people could check out that podcast. I've also heard that HIV treatments can impact your risk for diabetes. Can you tell me more about that? Um, yes, with HIV treatment, you're looking at the, the various medications uh, that do have an in- that do have an influence on hormonal levels and on the um, um, insulin being a hormone that that does not um, it's, it's not they're not able to use the insulin effectively and so there are some changes hormonal changes and other changes that will uh, influence the development of type 2 diabetes even type 1 if the pancreas becomes totally uh, not able to produce the insulin. And we should tell everyone that 40 years ago on June 5th, just a few days ago, the Center of Disease Control and Prevention reported the first five cases of what would be known as AIDS. It was the first time that AIDS, which uh, was went on to claim 32 million lives globally, according to the U.S., was actually um, reported. And it's just so interesting because this is so new, right? I mean, even though it's 40 years ago, these drugs and different cocktails have been developed to keep people alive, and now we're finding out that, like you just mentioned, that there is some risk for developing diabetes on those drugs. And I know a lot of taking those drugs requires a lot of um, fighting the stigma uh, of not only your sexual identity but also then developing HIV, which for a long time, you know, we were all led to believe it was our fault, our fault, our fault. And all that stuff could just play with your mind, right? And so depression and suicide are also very rampant in the community and would also be a barrier to why you wouldn't want to manage your diabetes. And that is so true. And when you look at uh, people who do face various chronic illnesses such as HIV plus diabetes, um, you know, there are a lot of varying emotional upheavals that will keep that person, um, I guess, the mind is bogged, it's, it's busy. There are so many different entities and so many different angles to look at and so much management and care that's involved that it does lead to depression. It's just overbearing and mind-boggling to handle all the various different components of care. And so you do see a lot of of suicidal tendencies and of course we were talking about smoking earlier and so smoking and some of those other cultural things that do happen habitually to um, kind of curb or to kind of put a, a, a make the person feel a little better about fitting in and doing certain things and, and being more accepted and so uh, you do see a lot of emotional types of of challenges, I would say, that go along with having chronic illness, whether it's HIV, diabetes, or 
and then combine that with being a person who is not heterosexual. Right, and how your health care providers take that on. You know, that is such an interesting thing. You and I had a conversation about that prior to this podcast about some of the pushback from the healthcare providers who aren't comfortable talking about my sexual identity or someone's gender identity. And, you know, I had to think about this. I mean, as long as I've been out, which is going back quite a while, I've always gone to doctors who were either also gay or specifically treated that community, and I just have to think to myself that I was taking care of myself. I mean, all of this to me, Patricia, is wrapped up in this uh, wrapper of acceptance. Like, you know, like you have to accept your diabetes and, you know, in order to treat it, in order to manage it. You have to kind of accept your identity, whether it's gender or sexuality, in order to move through life and and be happy and healthy. And so I know later on in the show we're going to be talking more about some of these uh, barriers regarding health care providers, and I'm interested to get your take on that. I'll be waiting because one of the most important parts of health care is to have a rapport with the provider. And when there is uh, tension between the patient and the provider or the patient senses that they're being looked at a little differently or not totally being accepted, then that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And outcomes are just not the same when there is not a rapport between the physician and the patient. I know, and unfortunately we're in a time when it doesn't seem like people are really willing to bend too much on their beliefs anymore. So, you know, this could be uh, a growing epidemic as far as finding, seeking help and finding the right people who will treat you with respect and comfort you and talk you through this because we all know a diagnosis of diabetes isn't just a snap. It takes a lot of time to accept and move through, and so you need to have the right healthcare team around you to do that. Um, Absolutely. We'll be talking about that later on the show. We've got some great interviews coming up, though. Patricia, thanks for kicking off the show with me tonight and celebrating Pride. Thank you for having me. We're going to continue the music with more of the Indigo Girls. You know, the two met, uh, they began performing together back in high school in Atlanta, Georgia. They attended Emory University together and emerged from the Athens, Georgia coffeehouse scene as the Indigo Girls. They chose that name after coming across Indigo in the dictionary and deciding that, hey, they like the sound of the word. I love a simple reason for something like that. Here's another great song off their debut album for Epic. It's called Kids Fears. Let's um, listen. Are you on fire? Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. You know, for many gay people, managing a diagnosis of diabetes effectively boils down to self-love. My next guest is the founder of Facebook group R&B CD Lovers and the Purple Vault, which I had the pleasure of donating some of my CDs to, including a few Luther. Uh, please welcome Aramex to the show. He's going to share a little bit of his coming out experience as well as his diagnosis of living with type 2 diabetes. 
coming out is literally twice with diabetes and actually the traditional way of coming out. I'm just curious, which story would you like to start with first, your traditional coming out story or the diabetes diagnosis that you received in 2000? I'll start with the traditional first. Well, I actually came out when I was 17, but I, I've known about me being gay since I was 13. And who did you come out to? My boss, who, who ended up being my godmother at the time. That was in, ooh, 1991, 92. And so what was going through your head? And tell us a little bit about what the whole experience was like. Well, being that I grew up in a family of Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, it was, I didn't know how, how to feel what, what was going on with me. I mean, I knew I had these urges, but, you know, with the Bible, with the witnesses, they was like, oh, well, you can't practice that. You have to remain true. And and I felt that, you know, that that's not who I was. So, you know, I tried to suppress it for a while, but then that didn't work. And then, you know, I just decided, you know, go ahead, let me see how it feels. And I actually liked it, so so I came out at 17 to my boss. Well, she said she already knew, but after I came out, you know, I just pretty much kept living the life that I felt I was free enough to live. Thank you for sharing that. A lot of people say they feel a lot of shame and blame around a, diagnose, a diabetes diagnosis. And for me, as someone gay, uh, gay, I also know there's a lot of shame and blame around coming out. Did you experience any of that when you were coming out or feelings of guilt or regret about the fact that you were gay or are gay? Oh, yes, most definitely. Most definitely, because, um, like I said, being that my mom was a Jehovah's Witness, I was uh, really ashamed for the fact that I didn't want to hurt my mom because my mother is my everything. And I felt, and I didn't want her to feel as if she raised me wrong, which she didn't. I didn't mention this, but I was raped several times, so my body just kind of awakened to a man's touch. So because I was raped and, you know, it was constantly for years, that's how that came about. So I didn't want my mother to think that, okay, you know what, that she raised me wrong, which she didn't. She was the greatest mother that I ever had. So, yeah, I was ashamed. I was in denial. I I did everything to try to, you know, suppress everything, but that didn't work. So I, so I just, so one day my grandmother said to me, you know what, just be yourself. You know, just be honest with yourself. You know, love who you are. Don't be ashamed. Do not feel any guilt for it. So, but it took me a long time to kind of get to the place that I'm at now. You know, be, I'm about to be 46 in a couple of weeks. There was a lot of lessons that I learned throughout my, my journey being a gay man. And a lot of what you're saying, though, I really feel also talks to our diabetes population, the denial, the shame, and blame. So now this is so interesting that your mother was living with diabetes, I understand it, that you had this quite tight relationship. So take us forward now with your diabetes diagnosis. And I'm just, again, wanting to see if there's a parallel here at all with your story with coming out as a gay man as it was about finding out you were living with type 2 diabetes. I actually would say there is quite a, a similarity between the two because, like, when I came out, you know, I, I was injured and I was ashamed. Same thing with the diabetes because once I found out I was diabetic, I went through a range of emotions, everything from guilt to anger to shame and then finally to acceptance. Once they told me, okay, you know what, you were diabetic, but the way I found out, you know, I was upset because my doctor just left my information on my answering machine and my partner who became my husband at the time, 
said, oh, well, babe, by the way, your doctor called, you're diabetic. I said, so what? I said, how did you find out? He said, oh, well, oh, he left your, your information on the answer machine. So, you know, being that I worked as a home healthy, I learned about HIPAA, so I went to him and, you know, and I explained to him that I can't see him as a doctor anymore because he, he violated my rights as a patient. Other than that, because of the fact that I, you know, didn't accept my diagnosis right away, I was like, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to eat what I want to eat. And for years, I, I did exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't go on the meds. I didn't do anything productive. I just said, you know what, I'm going to enjoy my life. You know, if I die, I die. So, you know, I went through these ranges, ranges of emotions, but then once I almost went into the hospital, I said, you know what, okay, I can't do that because, you know, there's people that are depending on me, like my older brother who's autistic, you know, he needs the support that me and my younger brother's given him. So I said, you know what, I have to change how I eat. And don't get me wrong, I love my fried foods and everything, but I had to learn to accept the fact that this was a situation that I had to live with for the rest of my life. So I made the necessary changes to ex- to go towards acceptance. So it took a while. So there's a definite parallel between being gay and also coming out as a, a diabetic, too. And your mother, though, in this case, was pushing you out to come to get checked with your diabetes, right, to go get tested for type 2 diabetes because she yeah, had she been diagnosed a decade earlier. So tell us a little bit about her journey because, as I understand it, she also she suffered a stroke. Yes, uh, she suffered a stroke in 2017. She passed away. In December, well, what happened was when my mother found out she was a diabetic too, she called me. She said, "Campbell, you need to go get checked." I said, "For what? For diabetes?" So you know, being the dutiful son that I am, I went and I got tested. They didn't find anything, and that was in the early '90s, I believe. But then, when the early 2000s came, that's when my diagnosis changed. And like I said, my mom passed away from a stroke, and it wasn't even um. I don't believe it was diabetic-related because they never mentioned anything about that when I spoke to the doctor. They just mentioned that she had uh, an ischemic stroke, which was there was a blood vessel that popped, that swelled in her brain, and pretty much the brain started to swell to the point that, you know, they, had, they were talking about, you know, giving her surgery, like piercing the, the cranium so the, the brain can actually alleviate the pressure, but she passed away December 12th of 2017, so... It's been a very hard journey for me as her son to deal with her death, but also she managed to live, I would say, for the next 20-plus years with diabetes, and she managed to do well by it. And did that influence you? I mean, here you were, just to back up again, you were saying like you were really struggling with rage issues, shame, blame around this diagnosis, as well as a lot of denial. So did she in any way influence you to kind of turn the corner? and being able to accept your diagnosis? Actually, not right away. I had to go through my own sense of journey because, I mean, her journey was much different from mine because even though she didn't accept it either, but sooner or later she was like, okay, you know what, this is what it is. You know, we had a conversation, and she mentioned to me, she's like, you know, Campbell, the the, um, diabetes run heavily in our family, so I need you to look into your health, take care of yourself, make sure you do what you need to do. How about your partner, Armonix? Uh, was he supportive? I mean, I think people would be curious to know how your husband at the time uh, was, since he did find out about your diagnosis off of the answering machine, how, how did he respond to it? 
Well, he was just pretty nonchalant about it because as far as he was concerned, it wasn't his issue, if, if that makes sense. Because I mean, I'm not making him a bad person, but he just didn't make a big deal about the fact that I was a diabetic. It was, okay, you know, you got this. I know you got it, so moving along. That's pretty much how he was at the did time. You, did you get any support from the uh, LGBTQ plus community regarding this? To be honest with you, no. Because at the time, I didn't correlate being gay with the diabetes. I didn't have that kind of a support. Because even when I go to my doctors, you know, I don't go in as a gay man with diabetes. I just went in as, as a person that had diabetes and that was trying to get a handle on it. That's the only thing that was going through my head. So I never received that kind of help or support for that. And we're um, running out of time. I'm just curious, like, where are you with it today? How are you managing both your diabetes as well as your fabulous gay life? Well, I mean, the diabetes, I'm still learning how to, to handle that. But as far as with being fabulous and gay, that's never been an issue because I have a new man in my life. I'm happy with where I'm at right now. The diabetes, I'm actually learning how to get a better handle it. So I'm actually switching jobs at the moment so I could actually focus more on my health. I want to be like Hey LaBelle, fabulous and gorgeous at 80. I love it. What a great episode and great uh, interview we had with Air Manix about uh, living fabulous gay life, living with diabetes, and he's, on, he's doing so well. So a lot, a lot to talk about with Patricia at the end of the show. You know, I don't know about you, but during the pandemic, I was reading a lot. And so... Um, I'm so excited tonight because one of the books I love the most, I mean the most, the most, the most, is The Flood Girls. I, I fell in love with this novel, and uh, the characters just resonated with so much with me so much that I actually stalked down the author, Richard Fifield. And you're going to hear my interview with him coming up next. But we're going to take another break and listen to a little bit more music from our diva inspiration, the Indigo Girls. They're both sort of singers, songwriters, and musicians, but the Grammy winners really identify as activists, but they don't preach to their audience. Their songs get the message across, speaking of politics and social justice, along with lost love and found, and lost, love lost and found and a life on the road. Here's Prince of Darkness, courtesy of Sony Music. Social media is a great bridge to connecting with people. 
And like I said earlier, one of the people I connected with was the author of The Flood Girls and The Small Crimes of Tiffany Templeton. He's also the edit- editor of an anthology of memoirs of Montana woman entitled We Leave the Flowers Where They Are, with proceeds that benefit arts advocacy programs for women in undeserved communities. So many times when you meet someone that uh, I'm sure that you idolize or they they wrote something that you really love, you get uh, dis- you may be disappointed. I wasn't at all. So here's my interview with Richard Fifield for you to enjoy. Please welcome to the show author Richard Fifield. Hi, Richard. Hi, Max. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you because I love your book, The Flood Girls, and I guess I especially love the coming-of-age story of the gay 12-year-old named um, Jay Bailey who was growing up in a small town called Quinn, Montana in in the early 1990s, which I know from doing some research on you is similar to your own story. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you uh, growing up in a small town in Montana and being aware of your sexual identity? Uh, You bet. Um, You know, The Flip Girls is a work of fiction, but I think every author (laughs) uh, inserts a lot of uh, autobiographical uh, details and um, you know this was my first book and I wrote it at age uh, 39 so I've been saving up 39 years worth of stories <laughs> so the second and third books you know a little harder <laughs> so um, I have a lot in common with Jake uh, I am from a very small town in Montana called Troy, uh, population 952, just like in the book. And, uh, you know, in 1991, when the book is set, I was 16. So a little older than Jake. But, you know, it was a, a different time, especially if you lived in a rural state, uh, you know, without access to uh, pop culture or any positive uh, role models. Um, Of course, the Internet did not exist back then. And uh, we didn't even have cable, so it wasn't until, like, 1992 that I finally got to see Madonna. (laughs) Um, but up until then, all I had uh, seen on TV and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, with your, your Richard Simmonses and uh, Truman Capote's, and they were usually the butt of the joke. Um, and, you know, I'm really passionate about teaching memoir classes uh, around Montana, Um because I think people's stories can be transformative. And for me, uh, going to the public library and everything that I ever checked out that had a gay character in it, that person, you know, was promiscuous and died or they were a murderer or they were always nefarious characters. Like, I could never find a story where there was a gay character with a somewhat happy ending or even um, a really self-fulfilled life. Um, 
And I knew from about age five that I was gay uh, because of General Hospital in Rick Springfield. <laughs> That's when I knew for sure. But um, I, I know. I, I, don't I love. Know. I mean, I just think it's so interesting how sophisticated we are prior to the internet and finding messaging or characters that we yep. could identify mm-hmm. with and how similar exactly. that is, like for my experience of being in New York versus yours in Montana, how we still have the same kind of touchstone pop culture references. One of the biggest ones in the book, though, you just mentioned is Madonna. I do want to talk about Jake mm-hmm. Daly's uh, love of Madonna because at one point, he becomes obsessed with justified my love. Uh, justify my love. Uh, was that your experience too? I mean, why is she such an icon to so many well, gay men? And uh, you know, I've been asked that a lot lately because of the Britney Spears documentary. Like, why are gay men so drawn to? Uh, well, pop stars and. Um, you know, it's really easy to be reductive and say, oh, it's the glamour and I want to be that person. But it's also, you know, when you feel different and you see a woman succeeding in a world that men created and being completely and utterly their own person, and not really caring about what people think. You want that for yourself because you can't have that. Um, you know, I couldn't tell anyone that I was gay growing up because I knew it was bad. And I honestly cannot tell you how I knew it was bad. Um, I mean, nobody ever sat me down and said, you know, gay is bad. But you pick up context and you pick up environment. And um, I knew I could not tell anybody. And uh, thankfully... I want to pick up right from there, Richard, because then, like you said, and you mentioned this in another interview about the best little boy in the world syndrome uh that might have been going on for you at a young age and the idea that as you stated in another interview, when you when you feel when you felt needed, you can't be bullied. So in your oh my god, um, you are so good at so research, for you, man. You kind of acted that out by like, yeah. So you well, said like in, a, the, you know, in the prom, you make the prom amazing. You make yourself all the homecoming clothes, which is like Jake it's, Bailey. I mean, Jake Bailey is like well, um, redoing this whole town, you, redecorating everyone's life. If you make yourself indispensable, you cannot uh, bully you to the extent that they normally would. If they need you, they can't beat the crap out of you. Um, the people who didn't need me still beat the crap out of me. But, um, you know, it's also a matter of perspective because, you know, I graduated with the largest class ever. It was 52 kids. And I had gone to kindergarten with 48 of those kids. And so they had always known me to be effeminate and flamboyant, but I don't think they, just like me, had the context to say homosexual, bad, evil. It was just me. 
And um, I knew that I had to ingratiate myself in as many things as possible because if you're necessary, you can't be written off. Um, you know, I feel really badly for, you know, teens that grow up uh, that are isolated and shunned and, uh, you know, the today's generation, they have it better than we did and they also have it worse because uh, the world knows now about gay and straight and transgender and back then, it wasn't even on some people's radars. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was really strange to to watch Richard Simmons on David Letterman and have David Letterman ask him about his girlfriend. <laughs> you know, like, what? <laughs> and so exactly. you well, feel and like you're not... That, at that time, like you're saying, for people who don't realize that there was so much at stake given their careers and, and how out they possibly could be. I mean, both these books, we should tell everyone, you wrote The Flood Girls and you followed up with The Small Crimes of Tiffany Templeton. And both of these books, mm-hmm. the characters, um, what you're writing about are characters who don't really believe... They are worthy of love, and and right. what you were just talking and about. That, why, why did you? Why do you want to tell that story? And that's the story I always tell. Um, because I grew up not feeling that I was worthy of being loved. So, back to your original, um, you know, mention about the best little boy in the world syndrome. When you feel that you're not worth anything, you have to make yourself self-worthy in other people's eyes so you strive to achieve and you strive to do um, exterior things to get any positive reinforcement that you can because who you really are is not getting that reinforcement so the exterior things like good grades uh, you know activities being helpful, all of those things you do in order to get the attention, the good kind of attention that most worry about because they don't have a big black hole inside of them of self-esteem, you know? And uh, I think of of a certain generation, you know, I think I'm going to be spending the rest of my life getting over that and I'm really glad that in the last 30 years it's changed for kids but for those of us born before 1975 we spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how to fill that hole inside of us I agree and and you know we focus a lot on diabetes and health on this program and I'm just curious to get mm-hmm. your thoughts on how that idea of like uh, low self-worth or self-esteem how do you think that manifests in you regarding your health or you know how you may or may not handle substances and things like that Well you know it's there's a direct correlation I mean it's uh I grew up with a mother who was a brittle diabetic And, um, again, it comes down to that perspective thing of, you know, it's what you grow up with and what you see every day. You don't realize the depth of it. 
And, you know, I remember growing up and when my mother would have severe reactions, I would be embarrassed or, um, you know, it was, it was very traumatic. Uh, and then later on in her life, her diabetes uh, combined with cancer, when she would have a reaction, uh, you know, she, she would fall down and break hips and she fell off of a cliff once. I mean, and so I grew up with that notion of fragility and um, how being the other, you know, is is something that you want to strive to hide. And so when I graduated from high school and I was able to finally leave my small town, I came to Missoula, where I'm calling you from now, and I went to college. And I was like, yes. Now I finally get to go be with people just like me, and I get to have my first kiss and my first crush and first date. And, you know, most kids get to do that at age 13, and I didn't. So I moved to Missoula at age 18 and went to college, and unfortunately I did find my tribe, but I also found drugs and alcohol. And uh, when you feel too much, like I did growing up, it's such a relief to not feel anything at all. So when I was high or drunk, I wasn't looking over my shoulder, and I wasn't concerned about what people thought about me. And, um, uh, you know, it carried on to the point of seven, five, 12 years of severe drug and alcohol abuse until I got sober in 2005. And, um, you know, I was a crackhead. I was a heroin addict. I was a raging alcoholic, uh, whatever I could get my hands on. Um, but in the end, it was alcohol that took me down the furthest and the fastest. fastest. And it really did stem from that uh, self-loathing, and that's a disease, you know. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's true that when you are different, you tend to gravitate towards things that are comfortable. And for me, it was that numbness. Wow, that's the first part of our interview with author Richard Fifield. I want to bring in Patricia because I know Richard mentioned brittle diabetic. We've heard that term before, Patricia. Uh, Patricia, we don't hear it that often. Can you tell us uh, before we go on with part two with our interview what what is how would you define brittle diabetic? Well, often you will hear someone uh, being referred to as a brittle uh, diabetic whenever they have um, uncontrolled or they have highs and lows, excursions. Um, it's to a point where it's, it's difficult to manage and to keep the numbers within the ranges that are acceptable. And so you'll find someone who has an extreme high, and they will do whatever necessary to try to bring it down, take their medications, exercise or whatever, and they will get it down, and it's too low. And medications are just not um, that easy to adjust 
or to find the right medication. You don't hear that term quite as often now because we have newer technology and newer ways of treatment. We have the short and long-acting insulins that, you know, and we, we know how to use the um, the overnight insulin. So we do bolus and we do, uh, well, when I say bolus, I'm, I'm speaking of the insulin that lasts for a period of 12 to 24 hours, and, and then they um, take an insulin throughout the day, mealtime insulin. And so you don't hear the term brittle or you don't see that type of treatment with the um, insulin pumps, and we also have the continuous glucose monitors. But back before all of these things were in force and we were not using technology like that, we did have, we saw a lot of patients who would have those excursions. And so treating highs, treating lows, and it would happen frequently. You would have a person to have a low blood sugar several times a day or uh, at least daily, and that that's how we refer to them as a brittle diabetic. All right, good to know. And I know, you know, it's interesting to hear this. I think coming up he's going to talk more about his relationship with his mother because um, on top of her diabetes, she was dealing with a lot of things that kind of played havoc with the, the son-mother uh, relationship. And as you just heard him explain earlier how many other things, demons he was dealing with inside as well. We're going to play a little bit more Indigo Girls before we get into our second part of the interview with author Richard Pipefield. Here's Love Recovery. Oh, how I wish I were a trinity So if I lost a part of me I'd still have to of the same to Nobody gets a lifetime rehearsal As specks of dust or universal To let this love survive Would be the greatest gift that we could give Tell all the friends to think they're so together It's a beautiful album. I, I definitely recommend picking up the Indigo Girls. You know, one trans man who was recently profiled thinks there's a lot more overlap between the trans community and having type 1 diabetes. Specifically, he pointed out that transitioning and managing diabetes is expensive. And he's also endured a lot of pain and trauma as well as a lot of ignorance with both uh, transitioning as well as living with type 1 diabetes. On the other hand, he pointed out that being trans and living with diabetes has introduced him to communities to exchange support, advice, and jokes. And he admits that uh, he's become stronger through the face of both obstacles. I think that's a really wonderful way to uh, kick off the second part of this interview. Again, I, I was so excited to interview Richard because this book, The Flood Girl, really spoke to me, and I strongly recommend it. Here's the second part of our interview. We're back with author Richard Fifield. He's, he's the author of literally my favorite book for the last five years. It's called The Flood Girls, and we're so fortunate that he's going to read a passage from his book for us tonight. Thank, thank you, Richard. What are you going to read for us? 
Um, I am going to read from the beginning uh, because this book is, has so many spoilers that if I read anything else, people will know what happens. So I tended to read from the first chapter. And since we were talking about Madonna, I thought I would read uh, the section where we meet Jake and his obsession with Madonna. Jake listened only to Madonna when he was on the roof. He listened to Madonna and watched the sky instead of the dirty loop of trailer houses. It was too painful to regard his tiny universe. The town seemed so foreshortened and filthy. His Walkman had a voracious appetite, and Jake had lost many cassettes, had tried to repair the ribbon when it stretched and wound until it broke. He fixed most of them with a cunning little piece of scotch tape, and it usually worked. Only a little blip and squeal before the gospel choir kicked in during like a prayer. He had found rosary beads at the thrift store, and he wore these as he listened to Madonna, even though he was not religious. He wore three necklaces at a time, glass, baby blue stone, and wood. He knew he was supposed to say a prayer and finger every bead, but instead he named his enemies. It seemed impossible that he had 59 enemies, but the football team took up 32, and there were 27 other bullies and assholes in town. According to Jake's math, he disliked one sixteenth of his town. There you go. <laughs> I know. This book is so, this book is so good, and I, I just I have to tell you, like, um, there, my mother read this book recently, and so I was so shocked that she found it out separately from me, and she said, "Have you ever read this book?" And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I couldn't put it down." And I just, I love, I love what you say about Madonna. I don't want to give anything away, but it's just fascinating. And I, I want to talk about these female characters because you and I have this thing in common, which is we both uh, are around women a lot, and we also outreach to women. Mm-hmm. I outreach through Divabetic. You have uh, taught several writing groups and helped uh, some uh, group of female uh, publish their memoirs in a collection. So yes. let's jump into yes. these characters because, I want to start with Rachel Flood. Now, this woman is kind of a boozer. She's a town tramp, but she's also a blonde bombshell, and she's probably the least likely person who would be friends with Jake Bailey, except for the fact that their homes are in close proximity. What made you create those two characters and pair them up? Well, Rachel was, uh, you know, originally Jake wasn't in the book. It was about Rachel and her mother and uh, a a person going home to make amends, uh, which is part of sobriety, uh, cleaning up the wreckage of your past. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make Rachel different than the other girls in her hometown. And unfortunately, as we both know, you know, there's such a stigma around sexuality and uh, provocative uh, behavior, and there's, you know, shame, and I absolutely hate that, and when it came time to write books, I wanted to write the book that I wanted to read, and, um, you know, almost Every book I had read up to that point that had a female character who owned her sexuality and who, uh, you know, owned her swagger, as it were, 
they have to have some sort of come up and, and learn their lesson the hard way and be stoned in the town square by the townspeople. And I absolutely hate that literary trope uh, because straight men do things and they forget about them 10 minutes later. <laughs> they don't carry shame or stigmas, nor do people remember shame and stigmas about men. It's just women and they tend to, and gay men, <laughs> and we tend to internalize what people tell us what we are instead of deciding what we are on our own. And pretty much every female character I write transcends that, uh, uh, you know, the, the stereotype of I have to behave a certain way. Right, and it's so interesting that because, you know, when my mother read it, she really read the story of Rachel and Laverne, I, uh, which is Rachel Flood's mother, which we're going to talk about in a second. I focused on Jake because I just felt like, I guess the thing about Jake to me was just, he reminded me of my, my I have a brother who's also gay, and he has always mm-hmm. been so extremely talented and artistic, and mm-hmm. he, mm-hmm. he kind of befuddled us because it wasn't from the surroundings. Do you know what I mean? It was just like someone who just right. knew exactly like Jake did about how to do uh, how to build a float, having never done it before. And so when I read your book, I was just so taken by the fact of, like, the story of a gay man who just possessed such art- artistic um, talent. And I knew it when I lived in San Francisco and I worked in theater. I mean, I saw those men pre-AIDS uh, crisis who just had mm-hmm. exceptional talent. But my mother really read this and, and saw the story of Rachel and the mother, Laverne. And I want to talk about this because so you, you take Jake Bailey and you actually put him into probably one of the things you would think he would be least involved in, which is a woman's softball team, which I also know you actually kept score for a softball team. So <laughs> how does, tell us a little bit about what, you, what these characters in yourself glean by being around this group of fierce women, as you describe, both well, in reality, in real life, and also in the book. Well, you nailed it. I mean, it's, it's uh, Jake, the character, provides the heart of the book. Um, and, uh, you know, growing up, I really did keep score for my older sister's softball team. And in the early 90s, softball was a big thing. Um, we had nine teams in our town of 900 people, but it was, you know, all women. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced uh, women coming together and building a family of their own without any sort of male interference. And, um, you know, it's, destroying the stereotypes of cattiness and jealousy and all of that. When you're a team and you're playing softball and you're getting, you know, scrapes and you're bleeding and you're falling and, you know, you're getting the crap beat out of you, you build this affinity for each other. And I found the love that I needed by being around those women. Um, And so that's, 
the universe that I've always chose to live in is a universe where women don't need approval and women have a safe space to be who they are and what they are and not be ashamed of their past, which is uh, a good segue into memoir. Um, I, uh, you know, had spoken earlier about how I could not find any stories growing up that reflected who I was, and it hurt me. If I had found that one story growing up with a gay character who was self-actualized and happy, it might have made a huge difference to me. Um, but it didn't exist, um, or if it did exist, it wasn't in my public library. And I think about my mother. Um, she was married five times, each time to an abusive alcoholic, and if she had had access to the story of a woman who realized she was worth more and could leave and could be safe and could be happy, maybe she would have made different choices. So... After my book came out, I was able to work with women of all ages across the state and help them uh, unleash the thing inside of them that they really needed to talk about. And it could be anything from happy things like finding God or, uh, you know, a love affair or there's also a lot of tragedy that, you know, women don't ever talk about. And I have to say there has been no greater feeling than being in a room with a woman who brings in a story and reads it out loud, and she's never admitted that to anyone in the world. And you just see it leave their body, it's an exorcism almost. Their whole body just relaxes. And it is such an honor to be entrusted with those stories and such an honor to let other people know they aren't alone. So we took this book on tour and did uh, 37 small-town libraries and paired up with uh, nonprofits in each town so the women could read their stories and then the audience could have access to uh, the, the resources if they, they needed them or they knew somebody else who needed them. And the book benefits um, arts advocacy programs for women in underserved uh, areas. And it's, uh, it's my passion, really, more than writing. <laughs> now, when you see your interviews on YouTube or on with the um, Montana Public Radio, you just light up just like you did right now with your passion. And I'm so thankful that you're doing that. I mean, I feel the same thing about Divabetic and how we create a safe space for people to kind of, uh, women specifically, share their stories because there's so much shame and blame associated with type 2 diabetes. And then, of course, the general public can yeah. Uh, separate type yeah. 1 from type 2 just become shame and blame around the concept of diabetes oh. and it seems in so many ways we're sharing that then, Max. you know I, if, uh, I'd better give people the website if they would like to order the book $2 from each sale goes to uh, Humanities Montana and our arts programs and the website is 
MontanaStories.com. So MT for MontanaStories.com. People can order the book and meet the women. Um, it's, it's just been amazing to uh, to bear witness and to uh, provide space for people who carry shame and don't need to. Let me carry it for you. I love that. All right, I want to end by asking you um, about one of your favorite gay icons, and then I want to. And after we talk a little bit, about, <laughs> I want to know who who might be your new icon because you are an icon to many of us. I mean, I, I really did love this book. I, I can't tell you how much it would an honor it is to speak to you. But you mentioned that you mentioned that Truman Capote was one of yours. You were obsessed with him. Yes. And I just have to say, like I, now that I'm on the lying side of 50, I feel that some of that self-deprecating, kind of mean-spirited about him, which I understand was part of the time he was growing up, doesn't really serve me anymore. And I'm just like, what did you like about him? Don't you find, like when you were talking about self-loathing, that in many ways, in many interviews he did on the talk shows, he comes off very self-loathing to me. Well, of course he does. And it's, um, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen Hannah uh, Gatsby's Nanette on Netflix, where she talks about being a comedian and how if you make fun of yourself, other people can't. You get to do it first. And it's an intimacy thing. Uh, if you feel like you're not worth being loved, you push people away by putting yourself down. And, uh, you know, Truman Capote was just so fascinating to me. And I didn't know about him until I went to college. Um, I think his books were too scandalous for McLeary. But he was just, a rare bird and that he had this amazing talent and he didn't do the work to uh, let the talent be enough. Um, he thought he had to do more and be more and tear things down. You know, uh, one of my uh, <laughs> mottos is, you know, if you can't be nice, be helpful. <laughs> and he was neither of those things. But if you read about how he grew up and where he came from, you understand why he was so obsessed with status and with um, the ladies of Fifth Avenue and why he burns it all down in a spectacular way. You know, it's, uh, really, it's self-destruction. I'll give you that. It's really so who who do you look at like wrap it in, a, in a, the last minute we have who who inspires you today out of the new crop of LGBTQ plus uh, personalities and people out there in the universe? Oh my gosh, um, you know one person that uh, is an unsung writing hero of mine is uh, Grant Ginder, and uh, he wrote the people we hate at the wedding, <laughs> and it's just delicious. You, uh, I highly recommend that book. If you like the Sweat Girls, you'll love that book. Um, but as far as people who are, uh, you know, really well known, um, 
I really admire Ryan Murphy a lot. Uh, he, of course, has created uh, Glee and American Horror Story and Ratchet and Nip Tuck. Um, he was a writer, and he did a lot of series early on that were straight series, but had this very campy sensibility. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the things today's society that is sorely lacking is that camp thing that we love. Gay men of a certain age, you know, the John Waters, the the, the high-low um, camp is delicious and I never want to see it go away. <laughs> so, yes, camp. And, of course, uh, Anna Wintour <laughs> is my other icon. And Naomi Campbell well, and there Kate you go. And Madonna. <laughs> all right. Get them all in. All right. Well, thank you, Richard, so much for joining us tonight on Divey's Late Night. We appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Max, and be well. All right, that was the conclusion of our interview with author Richard Fifield. I think um, listening to it again, what really stood out to me is the similarity that we're both gay men who spend the majority of our time outreaching to women. And um, I hope if you listen to that podcast tonight that maybe the theme didn't turn you off, you could see that there are a lot of people from the LGBTQ community uh, who are doing good work. And, and I really appreciated having him on the show and always talking about storytelling. We're going to come right back and talk to a drag queen who's all about heart healthy. But first, let's listen to one more song by the Indigo Girls. Here's Center Stage, courtesy of Sony Music. Actually. 
Well, you know, I've always, at Divabetic, I've always used my own experience of coming out as a gay man as something that I think could be used in accepting the diagnosis with diabetes or a health condition. I know we had you on the show earlier, uh, late last year, talking about your heart health. Do you feel like that idea of celebrating who you are from a pride standpoint has any parallel to how you approach living with your heart health issues? Absolutely. I think that joy uh, is the healthiest thing for your heart in the world. Uh, and I think that celebrating pride uh, is something that fills a lot of people with joy. And I think that, you know, that is great for your health. It gets your blood flowing. It gets the positive things going on with your brain that go out and further send all those positive things to your body. So, uh, yes, absolutely. It's important that we all feel proud of who we are. And you're so outspoken about your heart health issues because I read about you on the Twitter feed with the American Heart Association. Did you have any hesitation in, quote, unquote, coming out with a chronic condition? I don't think I've ever had any hesitation about coming out about anything. (laughs) Um, I am, you know, I'm very proud. Uh, Proud of my heart problems, proud of it all. Uh, no, I think that, you know, I mean, I've always encouraged, uh, I've worked with lots of different health organizations over the years, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the American Heart Association, the American Alzheimer's Association. Uh, there's a suicide prevention group in San Francisco that I've done a ton of work with. Uh, and I've certainly raised a gazillions of dollars for Lyric and, uh, lots of other, you know, uh, organizations throughout, uh, the gay community. And in those guises, I've had to talk about my health a million different times, you know, and people are sort of interested, I guess. You know, I've had kind of this weird health journey. Um, and, I, you know, I do have some thoughts. Uh, you know, it is complicated if you're not a public figure to have your health stuff out there because when people hear about it, they think that they are suddenly entitled to an opinion about it. And that's not always great for people. Uh, certainly, uh, but, uh, I think that, um, you know, in my own personal journey, it's only led to really, you know, great conversations, uh, being able to help people, being able to talk to people about, uh, you know, coming back and being able to encourage people who are in a tough place that, you know, no matter what the adversity that you face, that you really, you know, one step at a time, you can come back. And and for new listeners tonight who haven't heard your journey before, can you talk a little bit about your cardiomyopathy and what you experienced back in 2015-16 just so they could get some kind of reference to what we're talking about? Um, You know, I I had this crazy thing where uh, I I went on vacation, I got a parasite, uh, it went into my heart, it developed into cardiomyopathy, uh, which then I also had a big blood clot in the bottom of my heart. Um, I went through about a month and a half in the hospital due to some complications and then was laid up for pretty much a year and uh, had a very slow recovery. uh, But, you know, through persistence and lots of, you know, continued exercise and eating right and trying to take care of my health, I've been able to, you know, make a great comeback. And we're so grateful for that. Um, You know, you are, we should tell everyone, you are the host of Sex, Drags, and Rock and Roll up in San Francisco, or you have been for several years. You see a lot of the LGBTQ plus community. I'm just curious to get your insight into how you think our community overall 
uh, deals with health issues or how healthy we are? Do you think our community um, goes out of their way to be healthy, or do you think there's a lot of, do you see a lot of people maybe, I don't want to use this word, but maybe abusing some of the sex, drag, and rock and roll that are in the title of your review? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think there's a whole spectrum, of course. You know, there's, uh, and, you know, uh, and it's not, I don't think it's just our community. I think, you know, some of this is age-based. I mean, when you're young, you think you're going to live forever, so you do a lot of risky behaviors. They drink a lot. They maybe have unsafe sex or they, uh, you know, without being on prep or, um, you know, you, you just take risks. You, you don't think you're you don't you think you're going to live forever. And then as you get older and you have some health crises, suddenly, you know, health becomes a more important issue to you. And, you know, that's why you, well, I'm not going to generalize, but, you know, you see a lot of people starting to, in their late 30s and 40s who make lifestyle changes, you know, maybe drinking less. When I turned 40, I gave up uh, hard liquor uh, because I was in drag and I was out in the bars all the time. Uh, one of the things that I always say is, you know, a, a drag queen only has to order one drink a night and she will go home blind drunk because, out of the, you know, the kindness of bartenders or, you know, uh, amazing fans who love them, uh, they, you know, the glass is never empty. And so I would go in and order one drink and I would black out at 10 o'clock and I would be like, how the hell did I black out? I literally only had, I ordered one drink. And then, you know, you're like, but when you think about it, that drink was never empty all night. So, <laughs> uh, so I do think that, you know, I don't think it's necessarily endemic to the LGBTQ plus community. I think it's all, you know, maybe all of Americans or all people in general. When we're young, yeah, they're going to drink too much or they're going to, uh, you know, eat too much because you don't, you know, when you're 20 and you eat a lot of fat fried food, doesn't really have the same effect as when you're 40. I mean, it does inside, but outside it doesn't. So, you know, I mean, once it really starts to impact your waist and, you know, you feel, you know, the, the changes that happen when you eat like that or you drink a lot or you maybe do drugs. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen. Now, there's some people who can't stop that when they turn 40 or when they turn 30. And people who think that they, are, you know, don't ever get over that, I'm going to live forever thing, and do it into their 50s and maybe their 60s if they live that long. But in my experience, the people who never gave up those bad habits haven't fared so well. I agree. I agree. I want to I want to talk about drag with you. Um, you know, it's become such a big staple of not only the queer community <laughs> but the the world today. Why is that? And how do these? Uh, why are you playing with gender expectations? Well, you know, I mean, I'm a lot older than these than people who are doing it now, and we all come from different places and different eras, and we have different motivations. I mean, a lot of the young people now, it seems to me, are doing this to become a star or to get on TV. Uh, and they don't really understand what drag is or, and they're not, you know, they, they're reasoning for doing it. Not that it's not pure. I mean, whatever, it's an art form and uh, it's recognized as an art form now because of all the work that all these drag queens have done for many years. What I see on TV, I'm not going to say I think it's the best drag in the world because I see some amazing and incredible performances that would never get on TV because they're too artistic and they're too creative and it wouldn't translate. Um, 
But drag is imagination and it's creativity and it sparkles and it's bigger than life. My wigs are giant. My boobs are giant. My butt is giant. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a caricature of something. Uh, you know, sometimes it's Kellyanne Conway. Sometimes it's Patti Smith. Over the years, I've heard people say that, you know, drag is misogynistic. Although I don't see how that can be because I know a lot of women drag queens, so I don't really see how they can be misogynistic. But well, I whatever. Mean, specifically, I, I Mary, lots Mary of Cheney said that. I mean, to that point, I want to bring this up, that Mary Cheney did say that why is drag socially acceptable and blackface isn't? That's Liz Cheney's sister, and she just, uh, she's been quoted for saying that a lot. I know a woman I used to work for also agreed that she felt that it wasn't representing a real woman. She felt like it was some kind of like every well, drag queen. It's she not. It's entertainment. I mean, is every, movie, is every movie representing a real thing? Is every cartoon representing a real thing? It's, it's an art. It's, it's not, uh, you know, drag is different than transvestism. People who are transvestites live in those clothes and want to live in the clothes of another sex. Drag is entertainment. I mean, and uh, is it comparable to blackface? I mean, I'm not making fun of women when I'm doing drag. In fact, quite opposite sometimes. I mean, my numbers tend to be about empowering women or women taking power or... Uh, you know, I I tend to revere strong women, so uh, <laughs> I don't think. No, and, and I and I, I want to agree with black that because I read black how face was, black face was not King. meant to level up black people. Right. You know, black and face was not meant to bring black you, people up. You specifically have said in articles how you love Barbara Streisand, Diana Ross, Carol King, Linda Ronstadt, Pat LaBelle, Gloria Gaynor, Janis Joplin, Aretha Franklin, and that these women have taught you how not to be a victim. And through strong, strongs, you could identify with strong women, and that's what you encourage. And so, I mean, uh, I wanted to talk about that also, that you use it as a platform to really show people strength and pride, so to speak. And, and I Well, think I come really from strong women. So. I have, you know, I have three sisters who are very strong women. I, have a, I mentioned this when we talked before. I have a sister who has cerebral palsy who overcame incredible odds to live a completely normal life, you know, that was, you know, the opposite was predicted for her. She was, you know, they said she would be institutionalized her entire adult life. Um, my mom was, is, and was a very strong woman. Uh, my grandpa, my grandmother, uh, I only had one. My other grandmother passed away when my, when my mother was young. Uh, but she was a very, very strong and opinionated woman. And i spent my life with women best friends who are strong and opinionated. So uh, I definitely have a type when it comes to the women. Uh, and that is what I try to project in my own. And that's what I think of Mother Chaka and, you know, I mean, I'm a mother. I'm, I'm the lioness. I'm protecting my cubs. I'm, you know, uh, and I see my cubs as the gay community. I see my cubs as the gay world or, you know, I mean, uh, you know, if I'm doing something, certainly something political, nine times out of ten, it's on behalf of the underdog, not mocking the underdog. Well, it's also about, it seems to be a lot about self-image. And, again, you said in an article that your brand of drag is exuberant and accessible and unapologetic and that you would go naked on stage just to encourage other fat people to feel that good about themselves (laughs) or do it as well. 
So talk a little bit, because this is a big issue for us with our diabetes community about self-image and how we look at our bodies if we don't think they're what we, the bodies we see in magazines. So how are you, what kind of message can you give to people who might be struggling with body image or body love or self-image? All I can tell you is take the best care of the vessel that you have and don't worry about what anybody else thinks or says. I mean, that's how I lived my life. Like, you, you know, I mean, I had acne as a kid. So I, you know, changed my diet or, uh, you know, changed my soap to hopefully make it, mitigate it. But it was never going to go away. I still had acne, and I'm almost friggin' 60 years old. It's crazy. I'm like, I have the skin of a teenager, though, now. <laughs> I look at it differently. Um, you know, I think that uh, you want to take care of yourself as best you can. I have always been heavy my entire life. I exercised and exercised and exercised. Didn't matter. I, you know, exercising just made me hungrier. So, and I was like, I'm exercising so I can eat. Um, but, you know, I was exercising. And, you know, I mean, my heart problems came from circumstance, not from hereditary. Before I had them, I did care about my heart. And I did want, you know, I did a lot of aerobic exercise in the hopes that that would mitigate my weight. Uh, and also in the hopes that I would not get diabetes. In many ways, drag kind of helps you accept your own body issues? Well, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I when I was heavy, and I mean, I would see people go on stage, maybe someone like Fatima Root, who's a, another San Francisco legend, uh, and, you know, in a diaper. And she was a heavy girl, uh, and she would do these crazy, crazy artistic numbers, but, you know, everybody, nobody was calling her fat. Nobody was, nobody was commenting on, you know, there were no side conversations about how weird she looked or whatever. They just, you know, it was part of the performance. And, you know, when I, I mean, it's, I, I can remember doing, like, numbers about celebrities who had gained weight, and I would, you know, do it in a bra and panties or even less. Uh, and, and, you know, being on stage and being heavy was so liberated, didn't care what people thought. And, you know, you do have to have a lot of self-confidence to do it. But it's not – self-confidence isn't, like, instant and it isn't innate. We build that. You build confidence. That's why they say you build it. So you build self-confidence. And a way to build self-confidence is to walk out on stage naked and nobody died. And nobody – and even if somebody pointed and laughed, I was trying to be funny. So – even better. I love it. All right. I want to end the interview with something that RuPaul always says on Drag Race. RuPaul says, drag doesn't cover who you are. It reveals who you are. So what, Mother Chaka, has, uh, who are you? What has it revealed? Did you ever see the movie Aliens with Sigourney Weaver? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the end where she's got the kid, you know, the, the kids hiding under the boards? And Sigourney Kemba was out in a big metal suit, and she beats the ass of the lady old alien. That's what drag reveals about me, that I was Sigourney Weaver. That you're a survivor, that, you, that you're a warrior? Not just a survivor, that I'm a warrior. I mean, that I will fight for gay rights or people rights or human rights. As you get older, your group becomes wider and wider because you care about more and more people. When I was young... I was only surrounded by LGBTQ plus people because that was where I felt comfortable. Now, after all these years out in the world and, you know, 
the world has changed dramatically. You know, in the olden days, if you were at a, if you were in an LGBTQ community, you didn't even see any children. You know, in the last 20 years, I've been going to parties, you know, pride parties where, like, my gaggle of lesbian friends, they have those, you know, there's a gaggle of children underneath them who are all at this pride event. I mean, 30 years ago, that would have been completely foreign to me. So my group, my, my, who I see as part of my world has grown exponentially. And so, you know, now I want to fight for human rights, not just, I mean, not that LGBTQ rights aren't human rights, but they're just part of that. I want everyone to have the same ability to reach their potential that I have had. I love it. I think we should end it right there because that's the best way to celebrate Pride. I hope our listeners take that with them. And thanks for joining us tonight, Mother Chaka. We love having you on the show. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you so much, Max. All right. We're back to recap the show with Patricia Addy Gentle. Wow, a lot of blockbuster guests tonight, Patricia. What were some of the takeaways for you? I have just been overflooded with a lot of takeaways, but um, I, I truly, I thoroughly enjoyed each of the guests, and um, I've gotten a lot. I, I've learned a lot, and it, it just reemphasizes in my mind the need to be an all-inclusive type of healthcare provider and that we have to always embrace people where they are for who they are and to just go with the flow. In healthcare, in my practices, I've always wanted to be an advocate for those who are too weak or maybe too ashamed or too scared to be their own advocate. And so uh, it just reemphasizes that, that that is truly a need. It really is. I mean, I thought it was interesting about the drag, how Mother Chaka is using drag as a form of acceptance right? Like, that was really powerful, the way he was able to articulate that idea of self-confidence. Absolutely. I, I really like that. And um, the the uh, way that you characterized her as talking about not being afraid to go on stage to make people, I mean, naked on stage, feeling that, you know, if that's how people want to feel, if they feel better being accepted as being obese or heavy, overweight, then that's something that she would not be ashamed to do. Yeah, and I mean, that right now, with our end of, of things are st- starting to open up again. Everyone had a year to really reflect on just such an unprecedented time. I hope that what people heard in this is about just being comfortable with who you are. I mean, they, every one of our guests spoke to the shame. You know, they spoke about shame, but they all spoke about how they got on the other side of it. And I think, you know, uh, like we wanted to say in the last few minutes, just talk a little bit about the shame that some healthcare providers put onto those patients from the LGBTQ plus community. And that's that's true. Um, as healthcare providers, we have to be cognizant that our language matters. The label that we put on people it matters, and we have to serve all people and continually keep ourselves educated and to know about differences and to understand sexuality, to understand that there are new crises or 
identities and expressions of gender that we are seeing now. And so we really need to stay aware and treat people as human beings and treat them the way we would want to be treated and also, as I said, to just embrace inclusiveness. And maybe that's just referring another doctor or healthcare professional that you know is sensitive to someone's gender or sexual identity. I mean, because I don't want to push that on anyone. That would never be my intent, just like I never pushed anyone to come out about uh, being gay or even living with diabetes. I think that's all a personal choice, but I think, you know, because of the times we're living in, maybe it's something that you just have a referral list. You have people that you feel would be, you would be comfortable referring to uh, a patient to because you know that that person would be sensitive, like you're saying, to their needs and be willing to discuss their full life with them while treating their diabetes. And that's a wonderful thought. That's, that's something that we probably all should incorporate into our practice. I know, I can't believe it took me an hour and a half to get to that. All right, we're going to end the show. <laughs> I guess that's about pride tonight, Patricia. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank all our guests for being part of the show. Don't miss our July podcast. It's coming up. It's an 11th year anniversary. So uh, remember, every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be yours. Let's stay happy and healthy together. Here's Closer to Find by the Indigo Girls to end our show. Thanks for joining us.